0: I'm gonna to read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read the first few verses and then we'll start our study. First Corinthians 15, 20 begins. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Amen, church? So we've been going through First Corinthians 15 as part of our whole study through the Bible, the New Testament, really. And we've just had this wonderful clandestine kind of timing with First Corinthians 15. So we've been going through this chapter all month, Paul answering questions for the Corinthians and dealing with issues. And one of the issues he's been dealing with is some teaching that there are some in Corinth that are saying that there's no resurrection, no bodily resurrection. And we'll see, in a way, why that is happening as we go through particularly this section. But before I go on, just by way of introduction, I'm going to show you a picture of something called the Immortality Bus. I came across this in a newspaper article about the Immortality Bus. Zoltan Istvan is this fellow's name. He actually was an independent presidential candidate running for the Transhumanist Party. And his platform is taking this bus around. It's a Bluebird Wanderlodge, really expensive RV that he's converted to look like a coffin. To raise kind of awareness as if we weren't already aware of death. And he's really all about life extension. And his platform is that putting emphasis on science and technology with the express purpose of conquering death. That's his platform. And he believes that science and technology will someday help us to conquer death. Now I love the human spirit. We want to conquer stuff. I got fascinated with Mount Everest and people that try to conquer Everest and the climbing that expensive and it costs lives and we want to conquer outer space and all these things human beings want to conquer. And I think we've lumped death into that saying, if we can only have better science, if we could only have more technology, we could conquer death. But today's passage shows us the first problem with that. As we talked about last week, death doesn't come because of purely medical or natural means. It is medical, it is biological, but it's spiritual. And Paul will explain that to us. So when it comes to conquering death, we have to rely on someone else to do it for us, someone who's capable, someone who's qualified. It's not science, it's not technology. We can extend life, but we've never conquered death. Again, we'll talk about that as we go through. So the first thing Paul's gonna do is he's gonna take us to this grand, humongous picture of God's plan of redemption not just for humanity, but for all of his creation. We get so wrapped up in our little circle, our little bubble. We've got the me bubble, and I live in the me bubble. And everything's about how life affects me, and what's going on in my life. And we forget our lives are part of something much bigger. So Paul's going to show us that this is about the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. This is about death and life. This is about a man named Adam in the book of Genesis and a man named Jesus, the God-man. So once he gives us the big picture, then he'll hone in a little bit and say, well, what does the resurrection have to do with my daily life? So that's kind of where we're going. First half, big picture, redemption of creation, redemption of mankind, overcoming death. And the second part is, what does that have to do with my life? So you with me in that? So verse 20 begins with, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's already given us the first section in chapter 15, which talks about how the scriptures talked about resurrection, how the early preaching preached the resurrection. When Paul brought the gospel to the Corinthians, it was the gospel of Jesus crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And they said they believed it. Paul preached that, and Peter preached that. And then there were eyewitness accounts. So we established the certainty and the uniform teaching of resurrection Then he pondered, okay, well, let's say you guys believe it's not true. What happens if it's not true? And he talked about some hypothetical situations, and we talked about that last week. So now we're sort of jumping into this next section, and he says, after the hypothetical, says, okay, yes, but now Christ is risen. We don't have to go there. We know that that's all hypothetical. In fact, Christ is risen. And it's interesting, from is really out of, out of. It denotes the point of origin. Christ was risen out of death and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep being a euphemism for death. First fruits is not something you may understand. What does it mean when Paul says Christ has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or of those who have died? Firstfruits would have been very common understanding for Jewish people. We'll get there in a minute. But for me and you, here's what you have to know. I love the spring. Anybody else love the spring? How many of you felt like it was a really long winter? I don't know why I felt that way this year. Just felt like winter just dragged on and on. If I remember right, it wasn't particularly cold. We didn't have a lot of snow, but it was wet and dark and dreary. And if you lived on another planet somewhere and you got beamed down to Palmyra, Virginia in December, you would look around at this place and you go, wow, this is a dark, dreary place. You I mean, look at all these dead things sticking up out of the ground. Do you call them trees? There's no life in them. There's nothing. Everything seems dead. And what would you say if I talked to you? I say, well, I've just got beamed here and everything looks dead to me. This is like planet dead. You would say, oh, this is Virginia. Just wait a couple of months. Come April, this place is going to be hopping, springing. Do you see it now? I mean, life is springing forth out of death. And that's what First Fruits is all about. See, the Jews had seven feasts through the year. Three of them were in the spring, one in the summer and three in the fall. In the spring, right now, Christ's crucifixion lines up with the Passover. So they celebrated the Passover, and then with that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in that Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Feast of First Fruits. And they would take a sheath of barley. So they planted barley in the winter, and it would put down its roots. And then in the spring, it would start to come up, and it would actually go to seed. It would be ready to harvest. And how many of you understand that everything doesn't ripen all at once? You know that, right? There's like the first fruit. Ah, that's what that means. They would take the first barley that was ripe and they'd bind it all up and they would bring it to God, bring it to the temple, give it to the priest. This was a representative to God, an offering to say, God, you have brought life from death. All winter, the ground is dead. But then all of a sudden, life happens. Now, I didn't turn it on. Did you turn it on? Did you turn on life? But it just sort of happens, So life is springing out of the ground. They would take that representative part to God, saying, God, we believe that this is all caused by you. And this promise, this first fruits is a promise of the harvest to come. So unleavened bread and the feast of first fruits. First fruits speaks of resurrection. By the way, the Sabbath day is Saturday and the feast of first fruits would be on the day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday, the day we celebrate resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when he says Christ is the first fruits, what he's saying is that in the same way, the ground was dead, the earth was dead. And then all of a sudden there's this first ripening fruit for us. It's the blueberries. Anybody have blueberry bushes? Ah, We have like 15 blueberry bushes in our front yard. And man, they are loaded this year. And usually then you get a tree and you go, oh, look, our first ripe blueberry. And Helga and I look at it and we cut it in half. I give her half. It's like, one blueberry. We say, thank you, God, for our blueberry, and we eat it. And we're like, oh, can't wait. And then by the time June comes, we're putting blueberries in bags because there's so many of them. So when it comes to resurrection, I think the people in Corinth are struggling with timing. I think they're wondering, okay, you know, you said resurrection, but Christ was resurrected, but we don't see anybody else getting resurrected. We see our friends, our loved ones, our people we go to church with, we see them dying, and they're not rising from the dead. And we thought, Resurrection would happen now. So maybe the resurrection is just a spiritual thing. Maybe it's not physical or bodily. And Paul explained to them, just like a harvest, there are some things that ripen first, but then the rest ripens later. We are part of the rest. Christ was first and a few other people that were seen walking around Jerusalem. Do you remember that from the gospels? When Christ rose from the dead, the graves opened up and some other people were walking around. So that's the sheaf to God. So the first fruits is a promise that there's a coming harvest. If there's no resurrection, it's like summer never comes. It's got to be God's, He's woven it into the fabric of His creation, the resurrection. So that's the initial, how He introduces the topic. And He's going to show us this bigger context now of human history and God's plan for redemption. So He goes from first fruits and He says, for verse 21, since by man came death or the thing that causes man to die. By man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of dead corpses, lifeless bodies. And then he's going to explain that, verse 22. Who's the man that brought death for an Adam? Who's Adam? Genesis, Old Testament, the first man disobeyed God. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Tell me you're tracking with me. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And death entered and spread to everyone, Through Adam. And in the same way, if death can spread to everyone through one person, then also life can spread to everyone through one person. So he says, even so in Christ, all, all that are in Christ shall be made alive. Like seeds, that word for alive speaks of a seed that germinates and springs up and grows, pops out of the ground. That explains me and you and the resurrection. So Adam brings death to everybody. It's as if, maybe we can use the example I used at first service. Not sure if it's a great illustration, but good illustrations are hard to come by. You guys remember the Holocaust concentration camps? They called them death camps. So when Adam disobeyed God, it's like he and Eve were exiled to a concentration camp, to a death camp. Millions of people lost their lives in the death camps. And when we go to Israel, we visit Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum tremendously sad place. And you look back through the history and you just shake your head and you go, how is this possible? So bear with me for the illustration. It's as if Adam is in the death camp. Let's say he and Eve then have all of their children there. There's life outside the walls, but he and Eve have their family there and they have children, they have children. and, And here we are, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. But where were we born? We were born in the death camp, the concentration camp. Every human being has been born there. Now, even there, and I'm using it metaphorically, you could have religion there, you could play sports there, you can drive your cars and live in that life in that death camp area. But no matter what you do there, ultimately, where does it end? Tell me, church, it ends in death. So now, all of humanity is there. So who can rescue us? See, this is the big picture. The big picture of Christianity is not keeping rules. The big picture of Christianity is you are stuck in a death camp. And every other human being is there with you. And then one day a tunnel opens up behind your cab and a guy climbs out of it. And he says, if you follow me, I'll lead you to life. And you go, I don't know, it's dark in there. He says, you got to trust me. I've come from the outside. I came from heaven and I've come to earth to dig this tunnel, to make a way for you to come back to God. Now, some people will go, I can't see the end. I don't know if, if I can trust you. I don't know where this really leads. I mean, I don't really know you that well. I don't know where this leads. He says, okay, I'm telling you. This tunnel being buried, going underground and coming out on the other side. But if you do it, if you go in a tunnel, you will come out on the other side and there's life and there's light and there's truth and there's pleasure and there's joy. You gotta make up your mind. Some will follow and they'll get out and others will stay with Adam in the death camp. So it's really a story about two kingdoms, two regions the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, and the kingdom of light and life in his son's love. Are you with me, church? So pastor, what does religious routine have to do with this? Nothing, nothing. It's either Adam or Jesus. That's what he says here. In Adam all died. Okay, John 3, Nicodemus. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. And he says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. doesn't see Nicodemus, you got to fast, you got to pray, you got to read your Bible, you got to get baptized, none of that. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, hey, I'm a Jew. I got Abraham as my father. No, Abraham needed help too. Abraham was inside the death camp himself. Only way anybody makes it out is by faith or by sort of, if you think about it, when you pop up like Jonah coming out of the whale, whoop, it's like being born again, right? Jonah is a picture of resurrection, when you come out of the ground on the other side, it's like you're born again. And that's what John 3 tells us, that unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, he says, but there's an order to it, verse 23, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward, not now Corinthian church, not right away people in Corinth, not right away people in fluva. afterwards, later on, those who are Christ's when? At his coming. See, part of the gospel is that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended. And what's the next part, church? He is coming back. He's coming back. And he tells the Thessalonian church, he says, when he comes at the rapture, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds and they'll always be with the Lord. So that's sort of the explanation of that. But Paul's not wanting to give us exact explanation all he's saying is that there's an order to these things. They expected it now. So because they were confused, because they were maybe misunderstanding God's plan, they began to teach, someone began to teach, well, there is no resurrection. And Paul's saying, no, no, there is a resurrection. It's just not yet. But Christ was resurrected. Yes, that was the first fruit. Your resurrection, my resurrection, your loved one's resurrection who died in Christ, that's coming later when Christ Returns. Are you with me, church? And verse 24 says, Then comes the end. That's an interesting word. Telos, it means the end game, the goal, where everything in human history has been driving toward, what everything has been aiming toward. What's that? What everything in human history has been going toward is the redeeming of the creation from the power and the reign and the authority of death. That's the big picture. And we get caught up in our small, piddly little thing. I mean, we get into some stupid arguments in church, don't we? We get into some silly criticisms and we just get distracted. This is what's really going on. Your life, God has made a way to redeem it from the power of death. All of us, the whole creation. So that's the goal. Then comes the end or the goal, the conclusion that everything's been aiming toward. I'll call it the end game for a reason. You'll see in a minute. When he delivers the kingdom or all authority... To God the Father, this is Jesus is gonna do this. This is why Jesus came. He came to conquer death, not the Romans, not tax season. He came to conquer death on my behalf. And then he's gonna deliver the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end or renders powerless all rule and all authority and all power for he must reign till he has put all enemies, those that are hateful to God and the things that are opposed to God, All enemies under his feet. That's a term of conquering. When you conquered somebody, they'd lay on the ground. You put your foot up on them. Did anybody have younger brothers? The older brothers know what I'm talking about. It's the uh, cry uncle. So that's what it means to put enemies under your feet. means to conquer them so that they're on the ground and your foot is on top of them against their throat. Submission. Then verse 26, the last enemy that will be or is presently being destroyed is Death. So, a couple things to notice. If you like the story of David and Goliath, I love that story. Again, when we go to Israel, we go to the Elah Valley where this battle took place and we picture it. And this year I made some slings we can take with us and practice throwing stones at nothing, trying not to hit each other. But we all want to compare Goliath to, oh, it's the big troubles in my life and I got this going on. And the sermons are all about how I conquer the Goliaths in my life. I got to face the big problems in my life and go and and be David. And that's all fine and well. But I believe that the story really points to Goliath is death and David is Jesus. Satan's side presents the champion. The champion of Satan is death. That's what he uses to make all of us fear. People won't do all kinds of things because of fear. Why won't you go fly overseas? I'm afraid. Afraid of what? I'm afraid of dying. So because of the resurrection, anybody that's ever feared death doesn't have to fear death anymore. I mean, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to say that. Like, I want to really own that. Are you with me? I want to own that verse. I want to believe that death brings an advancement. I can't say I'm there yet, but that's where I want to be. Now, when you talk to Paul, here's a guy who really believed that after he died, things got better, not worse. He really believed it. And that's why he put his life in so much danger. So Goliath is death. And Israel needed a champion too, because they looked at Goliath. They said, man, this guy is huge. He's nine foot tall. None of us can conquer him. This is unconquerable. He's unstoppable. We're afraid of him. And every day Goliath would come, morning and evening, I believe, and he would taunt the army of Israel. Go on, I'm tougher than any of you can handle. No one's going to be able to conquer me. And David runs at him with what? A stone, a sling and a stone. Nails him in the forehead. Down he goes, cuts off his head. Death, the giant is destroyed. And I like that. Jesus conquered death. How? One stone rolled away from the grave. Now, how many of you like movies? If you want to connect with the young generation today, it's all about the Marvel movies. Have you been watching the Marvel movies? Some of you have. Okay, I've got youngsters in my life and love to hang out with the young adults. And they're all about the Marvel movies. How many of you remember Star Wars when that first came out? And it was epic. Today, it looks ridiculous compared to what they make now. But for us, Star Wars was epic. But for them, Marvel is epic. And there's this movie that's like the culmination of all the Marvel movies. And it's called, I get some of my cultural references wrong. I called it the wrong thing first service. I don't know, I'm learning. I'm trying to connect. But it's called Endgame. Like that's the final culmination of all these movies, all this stuff. But the one before that is called Infinity Wars. And what it outlines is the enemy, the arch enemy, is a guy named, the kids call him Thanos, but that's not how you pronounce it in Greek. It's Thanos. They criticized me after the first sermon. They said, oh, it's Thanos. No, in the Greek, it's Thanos. Why is that important? Because that's the name, Thanatos, a shortened version of Thanatos, is the Greek name for the Greek god of death. And if you could read this in Greek, verse 26 would say, the last enemy that will be destroyed is Thanos. Now, all the kids are going, that's cool, pastor. You thought Marvel made up this thing. But if you see the movie, you see Thanos or Thanos is this guy that's ruling through death. And his presentation is the only way to be free is through death. That's how salvation comes through death. And he's just destroying universes and planets and people. And the Avengers are fighting against that. So we have to stay tuned. I think there's a spoiler alert here. We've learned the last enemy that will be destroyed is Thanos. So there you go. There's your spoiler alert. That's how it ends. That's the end game. But we laugh. We laugh. But here's the interesting thing to me is there's something in humanity that continues to ponder and postulate about the conquering of death. It becomes the theme of so many movies, even Star Wars, light and darkness. So we've got this theme running in the white noise background of our lives, we imagine and we gravitate to movie theaters to watch movies and seeing how powerful death is, but then someone comes along to conquer it. Where do you think that comes from? That's put there by God. God wants you to seek that which will overcome death in your life, and it's not David. It's a greater than David. It's Jesus Christ himself. That's the theme playing in your heart. And until you enter into that movie yourself, till you enter into that story, you will continue to be lost and frustrated. So Marvel Comics, they're just picking up on what's been around for ages. And they're selling movies by the millions of dollars. Jesus is the Prince of Life. Verse 27 says, for he has put all things under his feet. It really gives you the picture of these kingdoms, this ruler over here and the ones who then have to try to conquer him. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, these are quotes from the Psalms. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So when Jesus conquers all kingdoms, he's not gonna try to conquer God's kingdom. He's part of it. It's almost as if God is the reigning king and Jesus is dispatched as his agent to go and conquer death. And when he does it, he comes home victorious, giving his father the kingdom. So what you'll notice God does not submit to Jesus as the ultimate. Jesus is submitted to God. That's what Paul says, verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to the Son, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, God, the Father, who put all things under him, that God, the Father, may be all in all. The church in our generation has a tremendous focus on Jesus Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Very, very important, the author and finisher of our faith and of our salvation, and all that is true. But ultimately, even Jesus points to God the Father. I think sometimes we put an overemphasis on Jesus and a de-emphasis on the fact that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who we talk to, who has set up the plan to redeem your life so you could be back in relationship with him. Even Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, says, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When we pray, our prayers are directed not to Jesus, but to God the father. He is the one it's all about, ultimately. Now I'm not making that up. You see, it's right there. So that's all fine and well, pastor. Big picture, Marvel comics, kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, that's all fine. But I got bills to pay. I mean, I got a family, I'm trying to raise kids, the kids are driving me crazy, the, the water heater broke yesterday, I got bills piling up, I don't know, we're trying to find a house to move to, whatever it is, what does this have to do with my life today? And we're going to answer that question next, Paul moves into the real practical of the resurrection, with really getting back to, okay, so that was all like a parenthesis that we just talked about, but we have to deal with a little bit of a difficult verse first. So are you with me? Verse 29 is the reason a lot of people avoid this whole passage. Otherwise, speaking back to verse 19, otherwise, if the resurrection is not true, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Okay, so some of you are familiar with the Mormon practice of vicarious or proxy baptism. So the Mormons have a teaching that if I have a relative that dies apart from Christ, doesn't know Christ, then I, when I'm alive, can get baptized in their special place, in their special pool. And my baptism is not for me, but it's for my dead relative. So that they then can have the choice to be saved even after they've died. Does that make sense? Doesn't to me either, but that's where it comes from. So it seems like a couple of possibilities. It could be that in Corinth, a practice like that had developed, that people were being baptized on behalf of relatives, friends that had died. Now, again, there's no proof of that anywhere in church history. There's nowhere else in the Bible that that's mentioned. It actually goes against the Bible that says, for it's given a man once to die and then the judgment. But Paul's point is saying to the Corinthians, if that's what you're doing, if you're baptizing people for dead relatives and you don't believe in resurrection, why are you bothering? So he's challenging them that their own practice doesn't fit in with their theology. Does that make sense? Now, I don't think that's the case. I think what Paul is saying here is that if you don't believe in resurrection, it strips the meaning of the regular Christian baptism they were practicing. And baptism is based on the fact that we believe that it shows the picture of when you go down in the water, that represents the death of the old person. You're buried in baptism. But then when you come up, you're raised to a new life. That speaks of resurrection. So now what I'm going to do when we baptize, I'm going to say, do you believe in the resurrection or not? And if they say yes, then we'll put them in the water and we'll bring them up. But if they say no, we're going to have to leave you under. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's what you want. You don't believe in resurrection, okay, you stay under. I don't know what else to do. In mean, what sense does baptism make? So let me give you an option for this passage and then I'm going to move quickly through it. If you would pull up the slide with the Greek text. One thing you'll have to know is that in Greek, There's no punctuation. That's a picture of a Greek manuscript. You see the missing, there's no punctuation. You can't even tell where one sentence starts and another begins. You can see a little bit of paragraphs. So when you read Greek, the way you understand where sentences start and where they end is through context. So sometimes there's some discrepancy on where the punctuation has to go. So they have to work it out again through the context, but sometimes it's confusing. This is one of those passages that's just confusing because it could be read different ways. Punctuation helps us know how to read. Punctuation can be really important for helping us understand. The comma makes a big deal in understanding the passage. There's a big difference between let's eat grandpa versus let's eat grandpa. So from the research I've done, from the Greek scholars I've consulted, I think this is how we would best read this. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized, period? And then you would substitute in the words... It's called an ellipsis. It's a part of speech, words that are left out on purpose for being succinct. What will they do? we being baptized, period. It is for dead corpses. If the dead do not rise at all, period. Why then are they baptized for the dead? Question mark. And that makes it pretty simple. Makes it make sense in the context of the chapter. Okay, are you good with that? And if you're not tough, search it out yourself. We're moving on. And for the record, I do not agree. For many reasons, the baptismal practices of Mormons for their dead relatives is not scriptural and not biblical. So verse 30, and why do we, as he makes the application to himself, and why do we presently, present tense, stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die daily. So Paul again goes on, if there's no resurrection, then why am I putting my life in danger? If there was no resurrection, why would I bother? Paul lived a dangerous life. He was constantly in trouble. He's getting attacked in this city, getting attacked in that city, getting stones thrown at him over here, left for dead over there, shipwrecked. If there's no resurrection, why would I put my life in danger that way? He says, I affirm by the boasting in which I have in you that I brought the gospel to you because I die daily. Jesus said it to his disciples. The Christian life is about denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. When do we do that? Do that once or we do that every day? Take up your cross daily. So every day Paul got out of bed, he put his sandals on and he said, today I die to myself and I live for Christ. Whatever that brings, because I believe that there is more to life than this present world. And I believe that the things of this world are temporary and not worth living for. We have to interact. We have to use the things of this world. But Paul would say to the Corinthians, don't abuse them. So you see what's happening is their non-Christian belief that there's no resurrection has led to changes in their behavior. They're abusing the things of the world. They're getting drunk. They're living self-indulgent lives, sexually, with food, with drink, with alcohol. All these moral implications are plaguing them as a church because they believe this is all there is. I like the song, Give Me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Verse 32, Paul says, If in the manner of men, like any other human, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So again, a situation where Paul is saying, when I was in Ephesus, that's where he's writing from, he had to face some pretty angry people. And it's a reference, not just to the Colosseum and throwing slaves and criminals to the wild beasts, but it's also a metaphor for people. How many of you know people can be like wild beasts? So Paul had his challenges, especially in Ephesus, He brings the gospel there. People throw away their idols of the goddess Diana, the goddess of the city, and it's undermined the local business. And now they've come at him like wild beasts. And he said, why would I put my life in that place if there's no resurrection? Look, if I have lived for Christ and believed in the resurrection and lived my life for future things, if I've lived eternally, eternally is a quality of life, not a quantity of life. It speaks of living for things above, not things of the earth. If I've done that, and it's wrong, I don't really feel like I've lost anything. I'm very happy with the life I have because the world has no hold on me. There's not things I think I need to be satisfied or full or anything like that. And if you've partied it up and lived for the things of the world, you've enjoyed that, and you die and I die, and there's no resurrection. Well, I don't feel like I've lost anything, and you haven't gained anything. We're both just dead. But if the resurrection is true, and it did happen, and there is life after death, and I've believed it, I may have sacrificed a few things in this world. I may have lived a little more difficult life in some ways. I've gone without. I've not had the pleasures that others maybe have had to enjoy. I've forsaken some things. I've lived morally instead of immorally. And then I die. Nothing I gave up is going to matter because I will have gained everything. But if you don't believe there's a resurrection and there is, and you live for all the things of today, all the pleasures, just sucking as much life out of this world as you can get because this is all you got, and you die and you were wrong and the resurrection is the real deal, and you've lost everything. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, if the dead do not rise, hey, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Carpe diem, seize the day, which is part of a bigger quote, carpe diem qua minimum credula posturo. That's Latin, I think, which is translated seize the day, put very little trust in tomorrow or in the future. The gladiators would have adopted this saying the night before they would enter the arena to fight to the death against lions or against other men, they would have a big banquet and they would say, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we enter the arena, our life is over. All we have is today, so we better live it up and enjoy it now because it's all we've got. And then Reebok, I think maybe back in the 90s or 80s, adopted the saying, life is short, play hard. That's their version. The version for today, I'll know who knows it by who laughs, YOLO. A few of you know, some of you are going, YOLO? Is that like yo-yo, pastor? What is that? YOLO, the kids know about this. It's you only live once. Hey, let's do it. Why? Hey, you only live once. But see, we learn that if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. This physical body still connected to the life of Adam. The only thing I need to do is to shed this body and I'm gone to be with the Lord. I'm going to die but I'm gonna live. So to only be born once is to die physically and to die eternally, eternally separated from God. Our young adults are raised in a world, raised in a culture that has told them that they are just accidents of chance. There's no creator, there's no designer, there's no right and wrong. So we wonder why our kids are wrestling with suicide, depression, discouragement, anxiety, fear, Facebook, I see all my friends have all this stuff and I don't have that stuff. My life doesn't have any meaning because I don't have as nice of clothes or I don't have the nice car. I don't have this or I don't have that. And the kids are really struggling because all they have is let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The priorities of young adults are I need to get a job. Well, first I need to get a car so I can get a job, so I can make money, so I can have a boyfriend or girlfriend, so I can enjoy the party lifestyle. That's what they live for. Again, the majority, just out there. Ask kids, what are you living for? Job, girlfriend, boyfriend, Party. What else is there? German educator Kurt Hahn said the youth are suffering from the misery of unimportance. I have a book called Reclaiming Youth at Risk, not a Christian book, just a book about youth. And it outlines the fact that kids oftentimes today, not all, but many of them are very self absorbed. Am I telling you something you don't already know? Very few kids do things for the sake of doing it out of love. Either I got to get paid for it or it's got to look good on my resume. And I tell you, people come to this church and they see the kids, the young adults around here and you go, I've never seen such awesome young people. Why? Because they believe that Jesus Christ is alive and they've chosen against culture, against their peers, against in the face of embarrassment or rejection, they've chosen to live with Jesus. And we better affirm that in their lives because there's a whole culture out there telling them drugs is the way to go. Alcohol is the way to go. Party's the way to go. Sex is the way to go. Enjoy it all now because now's the only chance you got. YOLO. So he says, verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or literally good attitudes and values. So those in Corinth that were spreading the corrupting teaching that there's no resurrection, it was having an effect. The word ethos, habits or manners, as maybe your Bible says, is attitudes and values. When you believe there's no resurrection, it changes your attitudes and values. It's corrupting. It corrupts the way you think about what's important, what's valuable, and how you live your life. Stop allowing yourselves to wander from the truth, he says. That's a quote from a Greek playwright. Evil company, he says. That's the people in Corinth. But companionship and communication, the sharing of ideas, freely the giving in, the yielding to ideas of the culture will corrupt you morally will corrupt your attitudes. That's what Paul's saying to them. And so he says, awake, literally sober up. It's imperative, he says, Corinthians, to sober up to what's right and do not presently sin. Remember, Corinth was sin city. To Corinthianize was to be sexually immoral and drunken. They lived in a corrupt culture and the teaching of no resurrection gave them license to say, hey, We just better live for what's now because our bodies don't matter. It's a spiritual thing and we can destroy our bodies and abuse our bodies and have fun and still then be with the Lord. And Paul's saying, hey, that's a terrible mindset. Sober up, wake up to righteousness, stop sinning presently. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So a tough ending, but he says, those that are preaching or thinking against resurrection, he says, they don't know God. Ultimately, it boils down to, there's no knowledge of God. So for some around us, the resurrection is not one of these doctrines that is just sort of a theology the textbook. This has huge real implications for the way we live our lives and our eternal future. So I don't know what you do with that. You got to take that home, ponder it yourself, ponder what you think happens when you die, ponder how does the resurrection, how does eternity, 80 years, it's a blip. It's so fast. How many of you know that? The older you get, the faster it seems to have went. For all you English majors, if the resurrection is not true, I'd still be a horseshoer. I'd still be out there trying to earn all the money I could get from this life, living for whatever brought me pleasure. But I believe the resurrection is true, and I will stake my career on it. I'm going to come and give up that to do what God called me to do, and that's preach the word, because I believe that it'll benefit your life. Amen.